The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. When was the last time you splurged on something when you knew it probably conflicted with one of your financial goals, like paying down debt or saving for future fun in retirement? Well, if you do this, you're not alone. It's because of present bias, or to use the psychobabble term, hyperbolic discounting. As humans, we have a tendency to let the immediate rewards of the here and now win out over a desired future reality. To learn more, check out the Cash Dash Dash, a planning tool brought to you by the Guardian Network to see just how much your short-term spins might be impacting your longer-term financial goals. Play today by visiting www.livingconfidently.com play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. As ever, I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I am joined by my fellow uh, behavioral scientist and friend, Lisa Brenneman. Uh, Lisa heads up behavioral finance and innovation for TD Bank, uh, and she joins us here to talk about financial personality. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here, all the way from Toronto. All the way from Toronto. So uh, Canadians, uh, big fans of Canada here at Standard Deviations, uh, spent a couple months there and it was just absolutely breathtaking. The people were so kind, absolutely love Toronto. Uh, and the Blue Jays are actually my American League team. So we, we're, we're friends right off the bat. <laughs> Sounds great. So you are, among other things, a, uh, a big traveler. And I, I sent out a tweet this morning that, that said, there's the mistaken idea that getting to know yourself primarily requires sitting in a room and quietly introspecting. Knowing yourself is a contact sport and requires adventures. And then I said, go do something weird today. So talk to me for just a minute about how you think about your adventures and your travels as intersecting with your work as a behavioral scientist. Oh, gosh all the time. When you say do something weird, I, I think I do something weird every day. Um, and adventure travel is, um, is a huge part of my life. I travel uh, at least one really big trip every year. And I, I, you know, I don't ever really leave work at home. Um, you know, not day-to-day work, but always thinking about personality and behaviors and why people do what they do and how they do it. Um, so last year when I was in Africa, um, I spent some time in Rwanda and I was climbing in the mountains. It was a, a, an amazing, amazing journey, um, up to see, uh, some gorilla groups right in their natural habitats. And gorillas have a, about the same 95% of the same DNA as us. So, um, to me, that makes sense that they, um, probably have a lot of the same personalities as us. And I, I just watch them and it's like, oh, where, where's the silverback go? Look at him. He's kind of reactive. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's dominant. He's, he's fighting off other males to maintain his position. All these kinds of things that is not so different than you and I. Um, and so I find the more you put yourself into a situation uh, in a country that's so unique and different to what you normally do from day to day, the more you do learn about yourself, the more you learn about others. And then you come home and you have such a great um, experience that you're able to tie it to everything you do when you're back home. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I believe and have come to believe in my study of people and behavior is that there is no you. You know, we have this idea, I think, in Western culture that there is a static, unchanging you that sort of moves through the world. So that, you know, you at the bank and you at church and you on a trip to Rwanda are all the same same people. Uh, Eastern cultures tend to view people more uh, situationally, more in context. And I'm coming around to that way of thinking that we learn new things about ourselves as we put ourselves in different contexts. And so I think this is one of the most powerful ways we can introspect is not by, you know, necessarily sitting in our room and contemplating our navel, but instead getting out, having experiences, meeting people, interacting with cultures that are not like us, uh, and maybe even learning from the, uh, maybe even learning from the, the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, right? 
Right. I mean, this year I was in Jordan and I spent time in a Bedouin camp in the middle of the desert. And I mean, it it just, you're sitting there looking around and, and looking at stars you've never seen before and people living very differently to yourself. And you just learn so much about yourself while you're there. There's there's so many ways to live a life. That's one of the things that I'm struck by whenever I travel or wherever I sort of get outside of my comfort zone. I think that we mm. take take for granted that the way we choose to live and the types of people and experiences and food that we surround ourselves with is, you know, the capital T, capital O, uh, the uh, capital W, the only way. And you really mm-hmm. learn, you know, you really learn that there's so many ways to live a life when you get out there a bit. So yeah, that's the that's the advice, the challenge for this week is to go and do something weird. So you you talked about these mountain gorillas in Rwanda and how they exhibit uh, many of the same personality characteristics that humans do. I imagine this was on your mind because much of your work over the last little bit at TD has been uh, around rolling out uh, a financial personality assessment that's based on the big five measures of personality. So starting from yeah. the, starting from the very beginning, for those who are unfamiliar with the big five, uh, what is it, how was it derived, and, and what makes it, uh, you think, the best measure of personality? Oh, yeah. It, when, let me see, it was about four and a half years ago when we first started looking at it, and how we were going to understand clients better, understand their vision, their values, help them um, really understand how they make decisions about money. Um, Looked at a lot of different types of personality models to do that. And the big five really stood out um, head and shoulders really above any um, for many reasons. It's probably one of the best in the world. It has about well, in the 80s, 85%-ish reliability to get a personality correct. It was developed in the 1960s um, and has been tested and retested over and over and over again. Academics use it all the time. There's no lack of finding research validation on the big five. Um, it's also very stable over a lifetime. And that was very important uh, when choosing the right model to use in the wealth management industry, which is what I work in. Because these relationships last most times a lifetime, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and it's really well researched with respect to financial behavior. So there's, you'll find a number of research citations that have used it to actually take a look at um, how people think about risk um, and how um, they behave when markets turn, um, how they behave during times of emotional stress. I think the most important thing, though, and especially to me, was it's in the public domain. Um, All you have to do is use the Google and you find it and it's everywhere. And that made a big difference to me because it's fully transparent um, to clients. So um, and it and that means that they know that we're not trying to be psychologists. We're not we're using one of the best in the world and our magic happens and how I train and work with the advisors is making meaning of those things. This is, therefore, these are your financial blind spots, and we call it your wealth personality. Um, This is how you are. However, this is what I'm going to do to work with you to help you reach your goals. We're not trying to change you. Your personality is your personality. It's pretty much hardwired, but we're going to work with you to figure out how we're going to get past some of these things to make sure you actually get to retire at 55 the way you want to. So there's a couple of fascinating, there's a couple of fascinating things to me about the big five. When I first learned about it in grad school, first of all, there was a strong element of simultaneous discovery to this. So there were like four different research streams going on simultaneously into personality. Mm -hmm. And they kind of all landed at the same big five, which is an enormous amount of consensus for psychology, which is, you know, famously hard to replicate, uh, famously sort of subjective and, and hard to measure. So the fact that four different research teams sort of landed on these same big five at, at roughly the same time, I think speaks speaks very highly in its favor. 
And the way that it was derived is actually by asking people to describe the, the people that were closest to them. And then, uh, you know, linguists and psychologists drilled down on the types of terms that were used to describe people. So it's, it's really when we describe people that we know well, what kind of language do we use? And what are the common factors in those languages? Uh, so we're going to talk all about it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say exactly. I mean, it is, um, I found it fascinating that the very, very first iteration of it was two gentlemen who were trying to create a model to choose the right people to recruit for the Navy in the 1960s. I mean, that was the very, very first iteration. And it was all about who, are, who do we need to really um, be the best in the Navy for different types <clears throat> of tasks. And so I, that, and then after that, so many of, like you say, all these different places and all these different people started working on it. And that's why I love when you said at the start, it's a behavioral science. Um, so many people think of this as more of a social science, as, as, as a little fluffy. It's like, no, actually, this is quite strongly scientific and it is researched and it's well documented. And I find that probably one of the finest things about it when you start applying it to um, a world uh, like wealth management or finances that people like numbers and data versus the, the softer areas. Well, and you made a great point that it's in the public domain. Um, you can go right now and Google Big Five Personality Assessment and listeners can go take one. So if you're a fan of the Myers-Briggs or some of the other, let's face it, less valid, less reliable measures of, of personality, I think Lisa and I would both encourage you to go go look up an open source Big Five Personality Assessment, go give it a shot. And I think you'll 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 really dig it. So you know, there's all kinds of uses for this. One one of the we'll talk about the five specific factors in a moment. But one of the things that comes to mind for me is, um, so I'll I'll start with a story from from my clinical days. When I when I went back to my clinical days, my favorite study of all time in clinical psychology was the finding that the best predictor of whether or not a a client or a patient gets better in therapy is not the philosophical orientation of the therapist. It's not their school of thought or their approach. It's not even how many years they went to school, you know, like if they have a master's or a PhD. The very, very best predictor of, of client outcomes is rapport. So it's effectively the relationship between the therapist and the client. So the best predictor of whether or not you're going to uh, succeed with your psychologist is whether or not you like them. So is there a way that you can use these big five factors that you studied to actually match advisors with clients, or is that uh, not something you're doing yet? Uh, not yet, uh, but it is, like you it's a philosophical question, and it's one we debate uh, constantly. And my, my hypothesis on this is that personality traits are one of a couple of different metrics that would, could be used to really effectively match a, um, a client with the right advisor. Um, I believe a significant part of that is also value. Uh, personality would be a large one, but not the only part. And then you need to layer in, you know, expertise. Do you have a child that has a disability or things like that? Um, I think it's really complex. And in the end, we can use things like personality, values, expertise to narrow the list for someone. But in the end, like you say, it's the relationship. And it's the most important one um, that most people will have through their life besides their marriage. Um, and a client really needs to choose that advisor because it's the right fit. It has to feel right. And it has to be good to be right. And so um, I can provide to um, a client, a prospective client, a list of maybe five to 10 different advisors that match them on personality and values and expertise. But in the end, I want them to meet them and make sure they get the results. Like you say, you're going to get the best results when you have the best rapport. Um, so I think algorithms and AI can get me to a point, but the human factor, no one can duplicate that. So you really, really need the human 
and the other human to actually have the best conversation. Yeah, it's a it's a great point for any of you who are listening and are actively in the search for an advisor. Lisa makes a great point. Like you want to make sure uh, that they have, of course, content expertise in in terms of the particulars of your financial situation. But once you've uh, checked that box, I think the next thing to consider is, you know, do we share the same values and how do we get along? Because I think it's an underappreciated mm-hmm. uh, dimension of, of success in the advisor-client relationship. So the great thing about the big five is that they're easy to remember because they spell out the word ocean. This is how I always remember them. Uh, or canoe, whatever, you know, pick your, pick your poison. So we're going to go with yeah. ocean today. Um, and... I'm going to start with the first one. The O is the openness to experience. So you're clearly very high on openness to experience, giving, uh, given that you're traveling all over the world and hiking with mountain gorillas and spending time in Bedouin camps. But why don't you tell the, the listeners a bit about what openness to experience is and how it might impact their financial decision making? Right. So... It, what I end up doing and in, in, in my role of what I do is really how it applies, the application of the behavioral science. And so openness to experience, well, yes, you're absolutely correct. I am very high in openness to experience. When it applies to financial decision-making, if I were to see a person that had a score that is lower in openness to experience, it tells me that that person might be more tried and true in investing. They, they're they not as open to looking at um, more new and innovative strategies. They're lower and they want to stick to the historical, the proven, day-to-day proven strategies. They would, they would most likely be in sort of a, a guaranteed certificate that they knew exactly the amount of return they're going to get every month on that. But they also might be more risk adverse as well. But somebody who might score higher on that is open to the new and unique, right? They want it, they get excited about some of the things that are in the news as well. So can you speak for a moment about the relationship, if there is one, between risk and openness to experience? It seems like you you touched on one there, but what to what degree is there overlap and, and what are the dissimilarities as well between risk-taking and, and openness to experience? Well, in the research I've done here with TD, openness to experience did lend itself to people having... Um, a higher or lower risk tolerance. However, the factor that um, the dimension of personality that had the strongest, in fact, was reactiveness. And I know the typical model calls that neuroticism. We chose to say the word reactiveness instead of neuroticism, uh, partly because it's more of a client-friendly term. Um, and uh, we wanted to make sure that people felt comfortable with it. So um, as you can imagine, a lot of time, I, energy I spent on making sure the science is very um, easy and client-friendly and that advisors and clients can have good conversations. And talking about being neurotic isn't necessarily a good client-advisor <laughs> conversation. So we choose reactive, of course. Um, but reactiveness actually um, was much more strongly tied to uh, uh, risk tolerance and risk behavior uh, than any of the other five, although all five did tie to it. Fascinating. What about, again, I don't know if you've studied this, but what about something like home bias? Would someone who is uh, low on openness to experience uh, be more likely to want to own uh, primarily or exclusively the equities of their home country? Generally, yes, although I haven't been able to make it a statistical significant calculation. Uh, it, it, in general, though, I would say yes, it's a strong hypothesis for sure. Yeah, it seems seems at least like hypothetically there would be there would be a relationship there. So the second in our ocean, or I guess it's osher now that we're calling it. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the second, For the sure. second, the the second is conscientiousness, and so I actually got my break in financial services. Um, uh, vetting bankers pre hire. So my my first job out of uh, my uh, graduate program was 
was looking at high paid bankers and I would give them sort of a, a battery of personality assessments. I would give them an IQ assessment. And what, what we found for success in, in many financial services roles, but the, be, the best predictor of job performance was IQ or G, general intelligence, right? So the mm-hmm. best predictor of, of performance was IQ, but the best personality uh, predictor of performance was conscientiousness. So this is uh, broadly predictive of financial success. So wh- why don't you tell us about conscientiousness what is it and how might it influence our, our money mind? Right. Um, I actually think of conscientiousness as the personality trait to rule all personality traits, sort of the Lord of the Rings, the one ring to rule them all. Um, people with higher conscientiousness, like you said, um, you know, when I was initially working on this and, and looking into it uh, um, and doing all the reading and the, uh, the research studies, People with higher conscientiousness do better in school, have better marriages, better health, like lower incidences of heart disease and diabetes, and they do better at their jobs. But when it comes to money, and these folks are significantly more disciplined with respect to planning, for sure. So self-discipline will really get into the planning process. So for an advisor working with a conscientiousness person, um, these are the folks that want to do a plan. They are all over putting an action plan in place to get to their goals. They will establish them, stick to it, track it, do all those sorts of things. Um, And they have sort of the traits that make that success possible. Then you sort of go to the other end of the scale and you have to work hard to work with that person to have a plan. They live more in the short term where like we all do to a certain extent, but these folks really, really need a financial plan to get them thinking about their future. They need a lot more behavioral coaching and nobody ever signed up for saying, wow, I really like behavioral coaching. Um, But it is very true that an advisor would probably need to spend more time with a person of that lower personality trait because they think so much more in the short term. So very interestingly and not surprisingly, when I did the first research study is that we found Um, which aligned very much to research in the field, is that women were statistically significant, had a statistically significant score in conscientiousness higher than men. Um, And that makes a lot of sense. And this is one thing that I think is so interesting when it comes to um, people that have a financial planner or an advisor. Oftentimes, only one of them goes to the meetings with the advisor. And it's almost always the man. And when you think about it, things like this, when you see the differences between men and women on average, both of them have strengths or weaknesses that they bring to the table. And in this case, women being really strong in the financial planning area and their personality type tells us so, that that brings a really strong dimension to the whole relationship. And advisors working with both parties really makes a difference. So what are your what are your hypotheses around why women in on average uh, exhibit higher levels of conscientiousness than men? Is this because they're socialized to be more conscientious or do you think there are genetic uh, or sort of organic factors at play as well? To me, uh, in the work I've done and the reading I've done, I, I believe it's actually genetic. It's hardwired. Um, when you look at more of the how does personality change over time? Uh, we did a little bit of uh, research in this area. And while we didn't do a longitudinal study, myself and the other researcher, we took a look at people at different life stages. So um, when women become a, a mother, married and become a mother, or have children, um, their conscientiousness score goes up, but not significantly. So We can't absolute say, because it wasn't a longitudinal study, of course, that as women become mothers, they become more conscientious. But we know at that moment in time when we surveyed different women in different stages in their life, um, conscientiousness did change a little bit. 
If, uh, if any of the listeners have not read uh, Coates' book, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, it's a fascinating study into um, biological markers of investment performance. It's a fascinating look at testosterone and how testosterone can become uh, quite problematic uh, in, in how we make decisions. And so I think all of this supports the idea that it's a, that it's a more organic thing. Uh, even though I, I certainly see evidence um, culturally too that women are socialized to be a little bit more uh, prim and proper, if you will, than than men are. Men are, I think, culturally given a little bit more of a pass. Is you know, I'm a I'm a big believer that uh, any strength overextended can become a bit of a weakness. So uh, obviously, in in moderation or even uh, even to a high degree conscientiousness is a good thing when it comes to making and sticking with a financial plan. Is there a downside to being excessively conscientious with your money? Oh, of course. Um, like, as you say, the extremes of anything isn't great. I mean, eating five bags of carrots a day just because they're good for you isn't a good thing, right? So conscientiousness is one that you, if you are rank so high on the conscientiousness scale, you could actually forego living in the moment, living and seeing, as we started talking about, sort of living in the moment and seeing what's around you and experiencing that and taking that in. Becoming so conscientiousness could, you know, just as a hypothesis, that could result in you ending up living your whole life and never enjoying everything that your life has to offer and then getting to the point of, of uh, passing away and everything you've saved for and everything you've done along the way just moves on to somebody else or, or just disappears. You know, it's the classic, um, uh, you know, use the good China because why not? It, it's never going to bring you any joy when you're, when you're not here anymore. Use it now. Yeah, great. It's a great point. I think moderation is key, uh, even in things that tend to serve us very well. So the next one is mm-hmm. the, the next one is extroversion. This one I think is a little tricky because of the five, it's the one that has the most uh, sort of currency colloquially. This is a term we use in everyday language. So how does the behavioral scientific definition of extroversion uh, differ from its popular usage? And then, and then of course, how does it factor into the way we think about money. Right. I really think about extroversion and the way we use it um, quite differently than, as you say, colloquial. Uh, colloquially. <laughs> See, I can't even say it. Um, when I think about it, extroversion in modern day language, we tend to use it in a way that is all about someone being the life of the party or being a person who stays in all the time. And um, we think about it a lot differently in the roles we're in, Daniel. And and when it comes to money, it's a, a, a person who is on the more on the introverted scale is it's just more that they take time to process. They are reflective. They, um, think about decisions and financial decisions a lot longer, perhaps, and a lot more thoughtfully. So, in fact, at the very, very end of that scale, they might even get stuck at times and need a little push to make a decision. So, when I think about an advisor and a client relationship and something like that, I think about the fact that an advisor is coaching them by putting a timeline in place. Let's get together at the next meeting and let's make a decision about it then, knowing you have to process. A high extroversion person, like I say, is 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 they may be the life of the party, sure, fine. But when it comes to the way um, it involves the way you think about money or just behaviors, it's uh, generally about... Um, uh, just more spontaneous, making quick decisions. Um, and again, as we were saying before, something very extreme on that is making decisions so quickly that uh, maybe not giving enough thought to it and therefore um, jumping in and out of the market uh, excessively, that kind of thing. And then I think back to the study that we did, and we were able to see that extroversion 
um, actually led very strongly to overconfidence. And no surprise, um, overconfidence is something more characteristic of males than females as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you're exactly right. We sometimes forget that people who we we sometimes confuse introversion and extroversion with social adeptness. Some of the most mm-hmm. so- socially skilled, um, really great with people people you'll ever meet are are highly highly introverted. So it's it's important not to confuse those things. And I like to say too, you touched on it there that that extroverted people tend to uh, speak, speak, think, and uh, introverted folks tend to think, think, speak. So, you know, extroverts are more likely to leave a meeting and say, yeah, wow, I might have said too much. And introverts are likely to uh, leave a meeting and say, oh, wow, I wish I had piped up. So it's interesting to think right. about, um, you know, those those social determinants of processing speed and, and different things. So the, the next one is agreeableness. So this is one that if I'm a financial advisor, I want this information because tell us about agreeableness and how it might factor into the the client advisor relationship. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And agreeableness is is probably I find one of the most interesting ones because of the fact it like you say it factors a lot into the relationship. So when you think about it, if somebody scores lower on agreeableness, it is, they are the highly, highly questioning people. Um, and really, that's a good thing. It's their money. Um, advisors need to be really well prepared when they see someone has a score that's lower on the agreeableness side. So they, an advisor would very, um, they would really need to spend time before a meeting, making sure everything has a backup, everything has a um, how it was found, where it came from, citations, that kind of thing. Somebody is going to question quite a bit. And really, it's it's time for people to really do that. And I'm glad that, that people will, especially those that are lower in agreeableness. doesn't mean that they are disagreeable. It means that they are questioning the behaviors or the questioning the facts that are laid out in front of them and the the strategy that's laid out in front of them. The opposite side, though, I think is even more important because somebody who's so high and so in in agreeable is somebody who really loves social harmony over everything else. And so social harmony is, I will just nod my head and say yes to whatever you say because I'd really like the conversation to go away. Whether I agree with you or not, I'm just going to nod, yes, that's good. Thank you. Yep. Mm -hmm. And for an advisor to know that about a person is extremely important because typically an advisor is pretty happy when someone says yes. So fantastic. You agree. Let's get this done. Whereas if that person leaves their office, they could agree or they could not agree. The advisor doesn't know that. And it's really important for that, for that advisor not to ask questions that are yes or no. Because if you ask a person with high agreeableness, uh, do you agree with this? And they say yes, they move on. It's important that advisor is asking more open-ended questions and questions that don't rely on a yes or no answer. So they have to work a little harder to bring this person into the conversation and make sure that they are getting to really the heart of things. And it may not always be the answers they want to hear. It's not, maybe it's a no, but it really means that they need, they're getting to the heart of what's that valuable to that client and why they are thinking the way they're thinking. Well, I, I love that because I think, like you said, um, in many ways, people who are high on agreeableness are very easy to deal with, but it might belie the fact that they have deep concerns that haven't been expressed to you for fear of, you know, rocking the boat or fearing, uh, you know, looking difficult or uneducated. And so it is important to know uh, in in both respects to know how to sort of titrate that conversation. I really, really mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So- and I, I think that's what's really interesting there is that that's just the uniqueness of that person. And it's not that they are going to change, right? That somebody who is loves social harmony will probably always love social harmony. So it's it's a bit of a constant and it's something that the advisor needs to change, not the client. 
not the person. And that's a really that's a really big change in the way client advisor relationships need to move. Yes, absolutely. So finally, and my personal favorite, uh, what was originally called in the research neuroticism, what you, for uh, reasons that make a lot of sense, are referring to as reactivity. Uh, Tell us about reactivity and how that uh, factors into financial decision making. Well, it's it's probably the one that our advisors um, take a look at the most because reactivity involves when they get phone calls. People who are highly reactive on the scale of this dimension are people who, at the first sign of a market decline, get nervous. They, you know, their their stomach starts to churn. They call their advisor. They want to know, is it time to put it into cash? What do I do? What do I do? And um, it's emotional. And money is emotional. And that's all there is to it. And there's, again, we can't stress enough that Highly reactiveness is who you are. So an advisor needs to um, really work with a client on this when it comes to looking at calmer times, right? We all will go through probably, what, 10 or more significant market corrections in our lifetime. So let's get better prepared for it um, and talk about what's going to happen before it happens. And then when it happens, um, the coaching ends up being the most important thing. It's um, the advisor probably needs to have those folks at the top of their call list when a market downturn happens. That advisor needs to be always coaching that person to not look at their statements, stop watching the news right now because they're, you know, they're focusing too much on it and I don't want you to do that. Whereas somebody who is really low in reactiveness, I mean, really, really low, you sometimes have to check them for a pulse. But overall, when it comes to money matters, they're the folks that have a better uh, ability to weather the storm if the market drops. They're the folks who really um, almost are are the folks that, that some advisors will talk about, do you want to buy the dip? And because they're the ones who are calm enough to say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I get it that, you know, everything's on sale. I may as well jump in there. And they actually work with an advisor to have a bit of a strategy around that because they say, yes, of course, markets have to go up to go down, have to go down to go up. Let's take advantage of the opportunities and can build a very logical and practical strategy about it. Highly reactive folks, it's a bit harder for them to um, see the strategy as much um, just because there's just so much emotion tied up in it. So a a question here for you that's maybe a little difficult. You know, I I think one of the things that I love about the big five is that it's non-pejorative, you know, whether you're high or low on on any given dimension, there's good and bad things about, about wherever you land. Uh, in a financial context, it's immediately apparent to me the, the benefits of low reactiveness, right? An easy, easy time staying the course, sort of calm and even tempered. Uh, is there any upside to being highly neurotic? Um, I'm asking for myself here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the upside is, is nothing that will ever get by you, I would say. Right? There you go. It, Right? Nothing, you know, you're, you're a highly neurotic or highly reactive person really keeps an advisor on their toes. Um, and that's not a bad thing, right? Is should I be worried about this? And an advisor, it's just like a doctor, I think. And I, I often talk about the analogy between being a physician and being a financial advisor. Um, and that a physician for the longest time has had to, to work with their patients coming in already self-prescribing because they've learned from whatever online source that could be right or wrong um, that they have a certain condition. And they come in, they, they show them on their phone or the computer and say, see, I, I'm sure I've diagnosed myself as this. And a doctor, a physician in their office has to either you know, talk that person out of a, a, a drastic diagnosis 
or confirm and work with them. So I think when a an advisor is is in the same position is they are learning now that people are getting both good and bad financial information from the internet. And so they need to be prepared to have those discussions just like a physician would. Yeah, it's I think it's a great point because you know whether you're talking about being a little bit disagreeable or a little bit neurotic, um, there's an element to due diligence. There's an element of appropriate skepticism. Like this is your money, you know, this is a big deal, and I think it is within reason a good thing to be questioning, to be skeptical, mm-hmm. and to keep and to keep an advisor on her toes. I think that's all. That's all positive stuff. Again, in, in moderation. So you've done right. a you, you've done a brilliant job of explaining these the big five and and how they pertain to our financial lives. Uh, the the last question before I get to sort of a lightning round here is your current and future research is going to be uh, largely around applying uh, principles of behavioral finance to diverse populations. So I just wanted to talk about uh, a bit about the current state of behavioral finance, the current state of nudging. Uh, where are we? Uh, not taking cultural factors into account, and what does the future of that research stream look like? So I'm actually just right now, even as we speak, um, laying out the design of the research, the the survey, and and it'll be Canadians and it'll be wealth um, driven uh, and behavioral finance driven, but it is uh, it vitally important. And in Canada, as I'm as you know, because you spent some time here. Um, Canada is an incredibly diverse country, and um, as as far as how I am approaching this is, I think there is an incredible room to grow in how advisors work with clients from different diverse backgrounds and cultures because everyone uh, has a different attitude about money and a cultural impact. Just like you were saying before, context matters. And if you were raised in China versus raised in the U.S. or Canada, you're going to have very different uh, attitudes about money. Even though your personality type might be similar to somebody in Canada, your attitude about your money is going to be very different. So um, I'm going to be looking at a number of different diverse segments and cultures um, from our TD perspective. And, and that's because TD has a really clear strategy when it comes to diverse communities. So I'm going to be looking at LGBTQ, women, visible minorities, uh, persons with disabilities, uh, Indigenous Canadians, and new immigrants to Canada as my main focused areas. and. The financial planning needs, like when it comes down to it, I don't want to focus as much on the nudging area, um, mainly because I don't know where that will go. Um, I first want to understand and insights what I can gain from money decisions and how it relates to the big five when it comes to different diverse communities and then how that plays into the financial planning and advising needs that advisors can work with their clients differently. Um, I'm really excited to see the different types of insights. Like, you know, it's quite obvious that somebody who has a child that has a, a disability will need very different uh, financial planning considerations on top of somebody who doesn't. However, the insight onto how that person values their money is going to be very interesting. And it is more the softer part of how our advisors can work with uh, those that person differently than somebody who is not. Um, I haven't actually thought as much in the area of the nudging because I want to really approach this part first. Um, because I think it's, that's where the biggest value comes, both to the client and to the advisor. So ha, it, during my time as a clinician, I spent a summer in Hawaii, which was uh, fun. I spent a summer in Hawaii. That was bad. <laughs> yeah, that was a it twisted my arm. But I spent a summer in Hawaii working uh, at a college that was enormously diverse um, that that drew from all over Asia and the South Pacific, and um, you know a, a lot of small islands, and just had had people of all different backgrounds and cultures. 
and being a psychotherapist, uh, ha- coming from a place that was very homogenous and going to a place that was so richly diverse was one of the most rewarding uh, and fascinating and insightful and difficult things I've ever done because the cultural, uh, you know, the cultural mandates around you know, talking to a stranger about your personal problem, um, you know, so different from culture to culture. And so I learned so much about the, the people of the world, but it was just, it, it really drove home to me uh, viscerally something I had always known intellectually was that these things matter and that we need to be intentional about them. We need to study them out and we need to be thoughtful yeah. in the ways in, in the ways that we approach people from uh, from different cultures. So I'm fascinated Absolutely. to see the results of your work. I am too. It is, um, you make a great point. It is difficult. It's really hard. And it is, um, especially in an industry that hasn't um, embraced diversity as much as probably the other industries have. And I only say this in respect of uh, the fact that Canada, just like the U.S., has over the last, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus decades has changed. Obviously, it's immigration, people from so many different cultures, so many different countries, so many different backgrounds, but also so many different ways of life. And so, I, you know, LGBTQ, that makes a big difference in the way you would work with your financial planner, your needs, how you want to be addressed, how you want to talk about what matters to you. And I, I know just from talking to so many of the advisors, and I, I bet you hear this all the time, is when people are really have a great relationship with their advisor, um, you know, our advisors will hear things like, uh, not just let's talk about when I retire and how much money I need, but I'm actually afraid of retiring. Well, that probably is different for somebody who um, is a new to immigrant Canadian or somebody from a visible minority or somebody who is LGBTQ. I don't know exactly how that's different yet, but I, I hypothesize that it could be. And, and I think it's just incredibly valuable for more people to understand and know how that's different so that we as human beings can do a much better job of interacting and actually helping everybody get to their, to their end goal. The, the best part about being a behavioral scientist is, uh, is that it's not physics, right? I mean, the people are not, mm-hmm. people are not one size fits all. There are no universal rules. And so you have to keep traveling. You have to keep exposing yourself to new, new cultures and new ideas. And you have to keep, I think, modifying and, and tweaking your, your interventions to make sure that they are appropriate for the, for the folks you're talking to. So we will all be looking forward to that research stream uh, and we'll be watching for that. So as we close out today, I want to hit you with a lightning round, sort of a free association. I love the lightning round. Okay, get ready then. <laughs> Get ready. So I'm going to ask you something. Just need a brief answer. Just whatever comes to the top of your head. Okay. Okay. All right. So the favorite, favorite place you visited in your travels. Morocco. Something Canada does better than America. Uh, we spell behavioral correctly and that's with a U. Oh, wow. That cut me deep. <laughs> that cut, I, th- I thought, I mean, he- like healthcare or something. I was thinking healthcare or something, but then. Oh, healthcare too, for sure. Go. Hey, listen, Greg Davies would agree with me on that one from the UK. <laughs> he spells it with a U as well. <laughs> uh, something, right? Amer- yeah, something America does better than Canada. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think, okay. This may sound weird, but I think monuments. Um, in Canada, we do cenotaphs, which are are lovely, like uh, to the wars and things like that. But when I went to Washington and went to see all the monuments, they were deeply moving and stunning. And it, I just think America does a much better job of uh, integrating and engaging the artistic community to create beautiful, stunning monuments. And the, the Korean one like almost brought me to tears. It was so beautiful. No, it's, it is incredible. Um, uh, an overlooked nudge or behavior that could improve financial outcomes. Pre-commitment devices. Things Pre-com- like... Pre-commitments are so yeah. powerful. Yeah, say more. Yeah. yeah, so like putting 
uh, making a commitment and then putting it in writing, talking about it with your advisor, you know, your family or whatever, pre-committing to things like my tax refund is coming and I know that it's $20,000 and I'm putting half of it right away into my registered savings plan. In Canada, we call that the RRSP, you call it a 401k, um, things like that, because tax refunds still, no matter how much we talk about it, still feel like a windfall. And we get all excited and buy new furniture and do a whole lot of things. I am totally guilty of that. But when I make a pre-commitment to that a certain amount of it is going to savings or to pay off my mortgage or things like that, works a lot better. Yes, I still, <laughs> I still sit on my two couches and my uh, watch my TV that were a result of the uh, Great Recession era little windfall that we got from the Obama and Bush administrations. So <laughs> guilty. Okay. Right on. Right on. Uh, and then last last question: uh, an underappreciated or underrecognized uh, psychology or behavioral finance book. Um, I choose. Jason Zweig, Your Money, Your Brain. It Great was, book. I think, because, yeah, and I think because it was written, I think, what, 2005, somewhere in the early 2000s, I think because it was written a while ago, people don't appreciate it anymore. They overlook it. And I, I think it is absolutely relevant to today. And he makes it so easy to navigate the average person. And I just, in fact, I had it on my desk recently and somebody walked by uh, who was an advisor and said, oh yeah, we used to give that to all of our clients 10 years ago. And I thought, oh my God, why are we not doing that now? It's still still applicable. In in addition to your, in in addition to your book, of course. Well, yeah, you'll never be invited again. No, but we're not going to mention, we're not going to mention my book because they're so well loved and so highly (laughs) respected. (laughs) No, Jason's, Jason's book is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Jason's book is fantastic. So thank you so much, Lisa, for your time. If people want to, to follow your work, learn more about your research, where can they find you online? Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle at L Brenneman underscore TD. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. This has been great. Thank you. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian copyright is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020 Guardian. 2020 nine two zero five four expiration one dash two thousand twenty two